we happen to land on the first Sunday of the new year on the feast of the new year for Israel in the Old Testament. Now, for them, their calendar is a little bit different. It's a, it's a, a, a lunisolar calendar, and so their new year, their civil new year, begins, um, it, Tishri is the name of the month. Tishri 1 is when this feast is celebrated, and for us, it's one of those things where you never know when Easter is going to land, it, whether it's going to be March and April or something like that, kind of a similar thing. Uh, for this event, and it lands somewhere in the end, toward the end of September, the beginning of October. And so that's the beginning of their official new year. And so God gave the people of Israel instructions as to how they were to celebrate and acknowledge the new year. Today, that day, that celebration is known as Rosh Hashanah. Now, Rosh Hashanah really is the Feast of Trumpets, as it's literally described in our text in Leviticus. Now, Rosh Hashanah comes 10 days before what is probably the most important celebration or feast for Israel in all of its cycle, and that is the Day of Atonement. 10 days, they begin the new year with, with this, Rosh Hashanah, with the blowing of the trumpets, and then this, that is the beginning of the high holy days. These two are coupled together. And the ten days inclusive of Rosh Hashanah, the, the days in between, and then Yom Kippur is the way, the way the Day of Atonement is known today. That is known as the high holy days, and they call them the days of awe, the days of penitence, the days of repentance. Those are the most important things at the beginning of the new year for the people of Israel. We're going to take a brief look today at why, why that is significant and what we can reflect upon from that that is meaningful to us. So if you join me in Leviticus chapter 23, uh, this is such a brief mention in this text. We'll look at, we'll look at its uh, neighboring text in, in Numbers in just a moment, but in Leviticus 23 verses 23 through 25, here we have this uh, first clear instruction from God through Moses where it says, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, which again means it's treated as a Sabbath, right? Because remember, Sabbath isn't a particular day of the week. It's a rest day. It's a day where you cease work, where you dedicate your time to God, to worship, to family. Okay? So it is a day of solemn rest, a Sabbath. A memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation means there's to be a coming together of the people as a whole assembly. And you shall not do any ordinary work, you shall, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. Now let's go straight away um, over to Numbers 29, and I want to look at the proceedings for beginning the new year for the people of Israel. They're described a little bit in a little bit fuller form here in this in this um, companion passage. Numbers 29, the first five verses, God told them, on the first day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. Is it, a day? it is a day for you to blow the trumpets. And you shall offer a burnt offering for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. One bull from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs a year old without blemish, also, their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, 
three tenths of an ephah for the bull, two tenths of an ephah for the ram, and one tenth of an ephah for each of the seven lambs, with one male goat for a sin offering to make atonement for you. Now that text continues to say this is in addition to, and that's because at the beginning of each month they were to offer up um, sacrifices. At the beginning of each lunar cycle month, they were to offer up a regular burnt offering and other offerings. And this is saying that on this month in Tishri, the first of the year, you do these other sacrifices in addition to the regular one for the month. And that's just what the rest of the verses that follow that say. All right, so let's have a look here at the proceedings. We'll just kind of break it down. <clears throat> now today, <clears throat> excuse me, today what will happen, Jewish people all over the world will uh, walk to their, to their local synagogue and they will gather and they, there will be a blowing of a shofar. And so you saw, you know, this person proclaimed in the introduction as being a famous shofar blower because this is a whole art form of its, of its own. I watched a few videos. Do you know that on YouTube you can find multiple videos that are hours and hours long of shofar blowing? Who wants, I mean, literally over six hours, one of them, of shofar music, if you want to call it that. I mean, they can do different pitches. There's embouchure control, just like with any type of a trumpet, like a bugle or something like that. The, with the control of embouchure, with, with increased and decreased airflow, you can reach different pitches and so on. And I did see one, uh, a couple of different players. I saw one young man who, who did, was amazing and another experienced one who just, oh, Phil Driscoll, if you happen to know him, Paolo might be familiar with him, Nelson, maybe some of you guys. Um, Phil Driscoll's famous uh, Christian trumpet player. And, um, and I saw him playing a shofar like a trumpet with multiple pitches. It was pretty impressive. It's not the prettiest sound to me, but these uh, videos describe it as the, you know, the shofar sound is good for, for healing and cleansing and, and reviving of the soul. So some people apparently want to listen to that for six hours. Um, I don't think I need that kind of therapy right now, but... <clears throat> But it is quite an art form. And so in all the synagogues uh, around the world, you have those who aspire to be good shofar uh, blowers and to do a fine job. And I saw one with a young man who, at the end, on the last sustained note, with the, you know, the sustained and the interrupted and the sustained, he did his pattern of three. And on the last one, he started at this pianissimo, like pianissimo, this tiny, tiny, you could barely hear his sound. And he just went on and on. On. It was the slowest crescendo, and even the cantor standing beside him was gleefully looking at his watch and just <laughs> like, let's see how long can this guy go? And so just the breath control of that. So it's a whole big thing. People come together, the shofar is blown, people greet one another. Shana Tova, which is, head, it, it literally Rosh Hashanah means head of the year, but Shana Tova is, um, is good year, so as in blessing you with a good year. Now, once you've blessed people with a good year at the beginning of the, of the service and everything like that, you don't repeat that. You don't say good year to them again later in the day or something like that because that implies, apparently, that you're not sure that the first blessing was going to work for them. <laughs> you expect that they may not be likely to have a good year and they need extra blessing or something. So that's a little bit of an insult. So <clears throat> the day then proceeds. People greet one another, and, and then they go and what has developed since the 13th century, so this is not part of our Old Testament text, but since the 13th century, they developed the practice of um, uh, taken from a passage in Deuteronomy, the idea of casting away your sins on this, on this day, at the beginning of the new year, 
they developed the tradition of leaving that initial kickoff service um, to go to the nearest body of fresh water. If they're near the ocean, a stream, a lake, and if all else fails, a, a well. And empty their pockets into the water. I'm sure they plan ahead and you know, don't have their treasures in their pockets at that particular time. But some will have crumbs or pebbles or things like that in their pockets and they'll empty them into this body of water with the idea, the symbolism, I'm casting away the bad things, the sin in my life. This was confusing, of course, to observers in Europe in the 14th century and therefore the Jewish people were blamed for poisoning the wells. And when the Black Death, the bubonic plague came through, the Jews were blamed for starting it by poisoning the wells as they were observing their New Year celebration. They just can't catch a break. Well, so this goes on, and then sweet foods are enjoyed because the idea is that we are going to anticipate that God's going to give us a sweet New Year, a good time. And so the challah, you know, the fancy braided bread that's usually got, oh, I don't know what it is, egg wash or something like that. Am I right, Dorina? Is that familiar? Yeah. And uh, it, it's just, a, it's a nice kind of a sweet white bread that's baked and it's woven all together. It's beautiful. They'll take this and they'll dip a piece in honey and eat that. And then they'll take apple slices. And then they'll feast on other, usually some fresh fruits, some new fruit for, the, for that time of year, the seasonal fruit. Pomegranates are especially uh, popular because all those little seeds are supposed to represent little seeds of new blessings to come, many great things to come for the year, and so on. So many traditions, as these things go, have developed around it. And so it's a very, very special, beautiful, joyful time for the people of Israel. But it is also a sobering time as people are to reflect on what has happened in the last year and to anticipate what is to come. And so I want to look at that a little bit more closely as well. So the first uh, of the proceedings is the blowing of the silver trumpets and then the shofar. Now the silver trumpets are referred to in Numbers chapter 10. So again, Numbers 29 is where we have the greater detail of this, this day, the Feast of Trumpets. Prior to that, God instructed Moses to have made these uh, silver trumpets. And so that's in Numbers chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. And and here we see the Lord spoke to Moses saying, make two silver trumpets of hammered work you shall make them and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking camp. So this is what was used. Now there were patterns. There, there was you know, a single blast of one of the silver trumpets of just one trumpet would be calling just the leaders, the elders and the tribal leaders to come to an assembly. They would come gather at the, at the tabernacle for some important meeting, whatever the occasion might be. And then if you had, you know, two blasts, then you had, you know, everybody come. And then the different patterns that indicated whether it's assembly or whether, whether it's time to bug out. And then there might be enemies on the way. And God has given instructions it's time to move. And so it's time to pack up the camp and go. And God gave them, as we see in numbers, a whole sequence of how the camp is to be packed up, which group leaves first, and which part of the, you know, the Levites carry which parts of the tabernacle. And they had a whole system. And so if, the, if these silver trumpets were blown a certain way, then everybody knew it was time to break down the tent, pack up, and take off. Okay? So these were, these were key uh, elements in the life of the assembly of the people of Israel. And so the silver trumpets would be blown to call all of the people together on this day. On Tishri, the first day, on the new year, they would all be drawn together. This was to be a Sabbath day in which there was no regular work done. 
they were to come and, and have a convocation before the Lord. They would come and they would be reminded of God's faithfulness and be urged to repent of all sin and to anticipate a good new year. So we have the blowing of the silver trumpets and then the shofar once they have assembled. That was the beginning of that call, kind of to a call to worship. And then with all of, us, of Israel assembled, they were to offer the sacrifices to demonstrate their renewed commitments before God. And so he specified which offerings they're to bring, which again are on top of what would normally be brought on on the first day of a month, but this is the first day of the year. So they were also to bring this specific burnt offering, which we read, we described a bull from the herd, a ram, and the seven male lambs a year old and without blemish. The burnt offering, if you recall, when we studied the beginning of the book, the purposes of the particular different sacrifices or offerings, the burnt offering was the one that was constantly going. It's, it was offered morning and night in the, in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And this was the general acknowledgement of God's lordship and the people's responsibility to him in the covenant relationship. And it was kind of a general constant atonement for the sin of the people, recognizing they serve a holy God and they themselves are people who fail. We can relate to that, right? We don't have to, we don't have to uh, sacrifice animals to be aware. Uh, God wanted this awareness to be very keen for the people of Israel, but but we still we know, right? We are constantly in need of God's forgiveness. Thankfully, he offers it freely. So the burnt offering, uh, which was a significant one on this occasion, was offered up. And then also with the grain offering. And along with these particular animals, they would, they would throw the grain offering usually on top of that. And so we have the measurements uh, provided for us there in Numbers 29, the portions of those. Now, an ephah is about, uh, it talks about, you know, the tenths portions of, of ephahs, and ephah is about 22 liters in grain measurement and weight, and so um, they would take, you know, the three-tenths to go with the bull, two-tenths for the ram, and then one-tenth for each of those, of those year-old lambs. Uh, I had to look up the different, I th you know, I looked at it and thought, well, isn't a ram a male lamb, a male sheep? But the difference apparently is just that it's a mature male sheep. It's got, you know, the big horns and everything like that, whereas as the others, the other seven are one-year-old, and so there's the distinction. They're lambs versus rams. So those are offered up to the Lord with the grain offering, and then there's also the sin offering that was offered according to God's specifications in uh, earlier in the book that would be offered up as well, a male goat for a sin offering. So the purpose of these, the burnt offering, brought atonement for sin and recognizing, uh, recognizing God's lordship. The grain offering was a worship offering. It was generally, usually voluntary, and it's recognizing God as the faithful provider. And then the sin offering was for confession and the forgiveness and the cleansing for unintentional sin. That's the, the person coming to, know, coming to the Lord, wanting to draw closer saying, I know that I, that I, you know, I blow it in so many ways, so many times, and I'm just bringing this sin offering to cover those things that perhaps I've forgotten to, to confess, or the things that I fail to recognize as offenses against you, holy God. So the sin offering is brought. For these, so these are brought together. And I think we see in the particular offerings that God is calling for on this occasion, therefore, his purposes for the proceedings. His purposes for the proceedings, we can see in these things, first of all, to reflect. To reflect on God's faithfulness versus that of the people. 
the last year. It's a time as the burnt offering is brought, as the sin offering is brought, for people to pause and think, you know, God really has been good to us in so many ways over the last year. And he did provide for all of our needs. Things may, may or may not have been easy, but he did provide for our needs. He was always there. He was always faithful, reliable, true, and holy, and good, and loving throughout this entire past year. Now, how was I toward God? Was I faithful and true and loving and good? The people were called to reflect on these things and then to repent as a result. Second purpose is to repent of personal failings and faults. In other words, all their sins. People to begin repenting and to reflect on this and to repent of these things over the next 10 days as they approached that critical, vital, annual event of the Day of Atonement when the most significant sacrifices were offered in the, in the Holy of Holies, when the high priest alone could go in and sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant. And so in preparation for this significant Day of Atonement, the people were to be reflecting God's holiness, comparing theirs in light of God's holiness, and to repent of all the shortcomings, all the failings, all the sins. And then through this process, to find renewal. They, would be to, they were to, to realize once again, since God is always faithful, I should be faithful. We as a nation should be faithful. Now God has given us, and this is for the people of Israel, God has given them a, a covenant. He's told us how to live. He's told us how we can meet with his approval, how we can live as a society that pleases him and that can receive his blessings. Now, if you think about that, that is a grace and a goodness of God by itself. So many uh, other religions, and, and as they observed the people and the nations around them and the gods, the false gods that they worshipped, they could see that, that those ideas, at least, of those gods that they worshipped were, were so unreliable so hard to please, so confusing, so capricious, constantly demanding pain and sacrifice from the people just to not do bad things to them, just to maybe give them a crop for the year. Whereas you have the one true and living holy God of Israel who said, I'll be your God, I will protect you, I will provide for you. I will bless you. These are my expectations for you. I want you to live this way. And as we saw, as we have seen going through the, the book of the covenant, we saw that his demands were for justice, for consideration for the poor and the weak in their society, for moral living so that we're not treading upon the good of others. So we're not taking their things, so we're not destroying their lives and their marriages and their business. God demanded fairness and justice and consideration and love. That's a good God. And he told them exactly what he wanted them to do and exactly how to do it. In today's you know, modern business parlance, one of you know, the popular little sayings that get sometimes way too much traction, they clear is kind, right? There's a truth in that. 
to make your expectations clear is kind. And God has done that for his people. And so they are to take this time and, and reflect on the covenant. What has God demanded of us? How have I met those demands? How have I failed to meet those demands? I'm going to renew my determination in this new year to be more faithful to God, to obey the covenant more wholly, more truly, more faithfully. And we as a nation, as they were assembled, they would say, we together as a nation recommit ourselves to living in accordance with the covenant so that we might be in fellowship with God and enjoy his blessings in this new year as well. Now, keep in mind that for them and in this context, this is the beginning of the civil new year. Really, the primary focus is the practical, temporal blessings of God. They, they literally wanted God to provide for their food and for their water and for their families, for their protection, and for their, for their animals to survive and thrive and, and things like that. And so they, were, they wanted to do the practical right things before God and ask God to do the practical good things for them. That was the primary focus. But they knew that the practical cannot be separated from the spiritual. You cannot, cannot expect God's practical blessing if you ignore his spiritual demands, if you live in a way that pretends that there is no spiritual reality or that ignores God's expectations in our lives. So it was a time to reflect, to repent, and to renew for the people of Israel. So now let's just, it's, very, it's, a, it's a very simple event. Let's consider this for ourselves today. What can we take from this? We don't live in that same covenant relationship with God that the Israelite people did, but we do have a relationship with him. He has established a relationship with us that I will be your God. What you need to do is trust in my son, Jesus Christ, and his ultimate, final, perfect sacrifice for you that covers your sin. But that doesn't mean God has no expectations. It's not just, okay, I've got my, you know, our family used to play Monopoly. We used to enjoy uh, sitting and playing that for hours, you know, and, and it was a good thing to draw that get-out-of-jail-free card. That was great. Yay, all right, here I go, and collect $200. Well, this is not a get-out-of-jail-free card with just no expectation whatsoever. Yes, it's guaranteed. Put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. Your sin will be forgiven. You will be delivered from hell. You will spend eternity with God in heaven. That is guaranteed. That's true. It didn't come cheaply. It just came at someone else's cost. It was a sacrifice of Jesus. And so we shouldn't take it lightly. But we, we will see in some passages we'll look at here that there are still expectations as a result. So the New, Year's, uh, the New Year is an opportunity for recalibration for New Testament believers. Just as the Old Testament believers of Israel were to take time to reflect and repent and renew, we should do the same. Recenter ourselves. I like that recenter button on my, on my navigation when I've, got at, when I've got the maps up and things get a little wonky and I can't tell where I am. I hit that recenter. Oh, and it puts me right in line with the path again. We need to just kind of do that once in a while. And the new year is a good time for us to do that. First of all, let's look at some of the promises that give hope and courage for the new year. 
Right? We don't have to just do this by our own efforts, by our, you know, kind of gin up our own excitement and our own determination. And in spite of everything that might be a challenge or difficulty, somehow I'm just going to make it better this year. It doesn't have to be that way. First of all, our standing with God is secure. If we have put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, his death, burial, and resurrection for us, then those sacrifices are now unnecessary that the Israelite people had to offer, the, the burnt offering, the, the sin offering, the grain offering, all of those things. Jesus paid it all. And so now we can enjoy the promise that is in Romans 8, chapter 1. Romans 8, chapter 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, is there condemnation for some people? Yeah, there is another side of it, right? There is a qualification in the passage for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who put their trust in Christ Jesus are, as is described in Ephesians, in Him. For those who are in Him, there's no condemnation. Our status, our future, our eternity is secure, praise God. That's it. That, if nothing else, is a promise to sustain us, no matter how difficult life becomes. And certainly there are believers around the world, and there have been throughout history, who have had to cling to that and maybe had nothing else. There are those who have suffered for their faith greatly and died for their faith. But they always knew this. If all else fails, I know that because I put my faith in Jesus Christ, when I pass over, and when I face my creator, there will be no condemnation. I know that my eternity is secure. The suffering of this life can only last so long. And eternity is on the other side in which I will enjoy the embrace of my Savior God. That is a great promise to hang, hang on to. But also, 2 Timothy chapter 2 tells us that God is always faithful. I love these verses. In fact, I remember as a, as a teenager when I first really noticed these verses. I was reading uh, in my devotional reading, and I came to these verses, and it just hit me like, bam! It's like, wow! This is so cool. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. It is a trustworthy saying for if we have died with him, and that's in the context of understanding that we die to ourselves when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We associate ourselves with his death, burial, and resurrection. The old man has passed away. Behold, all things become new. All of those truths that Paul has taught, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. We have new life with Jesus. If we endure, we will also reign with him. There will be rewards in eternity. If we deny him, he will he also will deny us. If we break the fellowship, if we deny Christ, if we say, I have nothing to do with him, then maybe our status, our relationship with him is in question. Maybe we didn't have a genuine faith. But certainly, we shouldn't expect him to come to our rescue if we deny him. But I love this one the most of all. If we are faithless, and let's be honest, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. Faithfulness is part of his very nature. 
It's his personal character. It's who he is. Faithful. So God's faithfulness does not rely on my faithfulness, thank God. I can fail and fail and fail and disappoint him, and yet I can know that he remains faithful because it's a part of his very being to be so. That, to me, is a powerful promise. Because I'm in Christ, I face no condemnation before God. My eternity is secure. Because there is absolutely no way for God's faithfulness to waver or to fail, I can always trust him to be that true and good and righteous and loving God that he is. So pausing to celebrate the turning of a new year allows us, like the Israelites, to reflect, first of all, on God's work versus our own faithfulness over the past year. It's a good thing to sit down and be honest with ourselves. How did I fail God? When was I faithless? Not that we need to then, you know, begin flagellating ourselves or anything like that. We don't have to do anything. Oh, it was so bad. That's not really what God is looking for. But sorrow over sin is appropriate. But it's to recognize, yeah, that, that, that was a failing. That was a sin. That was wrong. I disappointed God. I was faithless in that moment, in that decision, or in that pattern, or in that habit, or whatever it was. And yet, God is faithful, so how can I recenter myself? How can I realign, recalibrate myself to walk in accordance with his faithfulness toward me, to respond as I should to his reliable faithfulness, to his love, to the relationship we're meant to have? So that's good. I, I love the, I don't have the text up here, I'm just referring to it briefly. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6 if you recall, it's, it's that moment when this prophet Isaiah had this, this vision of God in his temple. And we see him high and lifted up. He saw the robe, the train of his robe just filling the temple. And he saw the winged, powerful, beautiful, stunning angels flying around, shouting responsive call back and forth. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. When Isaiah saw that image, he was just devastated. He saw this vision of God's holiness, and immediately he reflected on his own lack of holiness, his, his own failing. And all he could say is to fall down and to say, Woe is me. I am undone. It's a good exercise to contemplate, to look upon, to think about God's holiness and how we compare. It's humbling. It might be a bit painful. But it's the first step in stepping into alignment, recalibration, recentering. That we might walk and live in accordance with his will and his goodness, his faithfulness, his righteousness. So we should reflect. We should take a little time. I hope you've done that. And if you haven't, find time. Find time this week. Find time maybe today to just 
sit before the Lord or kneel before the Lord even and contemplate, reflect upon his faithfulness over the last year. Maybe some things were hard. Maybe some things were difficult. Maybe there were times when you said, why, God, would you allow this in my life? I'm trying to do the right thing. Or, you know, I'm your child. Why do you let me have these difficulties? But maybe just flip that around for a moment and start to count your blessings. What are the things that God did for you that really sustained you? Did you have a place to live? Did you have a way to get to work or to work from where you are? You're still breathing? What are, and, and you can probably just get onto a whole lot more things. You could probably, most of us can probably list a whole lot of things that are way beyond anything we deserve. We've enjoyed many privileges, many excesses probably, if we're honest. I know I have. And so I look at those things and go, wow, he really is way more good to me than I deserve. Now, have I been so faithful to him? Let's just take time to do that. It's good for our relationship with God. And so then we repent. As the Israelites were called to do, we repent of the failures and faults of the past year. We say, we acknowledge them for what they are. We say, God, I am sorry for the way that I failed you. I recognize that was wrong. That was sin. That was weakness. That was a lack of faith or a lack of faithfulness. Forgive me. And we know that he will because 1 John 1, 9 tells us, and many of us have memorized it, but if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful. There it is again. He is faithful, and because of Christ's sacrifice, he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the, the forgiveness, the cleansing, is absolutely available to us. Again, for those who are in Christ Jesus, we can go to him. We can confess our sins to him. We can recognize, yes, I failed you in this way and that way and, and so on. And wow, it's pretty impressive how badly I failed in so many times over the past year. But because of Christ's sacrifice, Father, I ask you to forgive me. And he is faithful to do so. That is the deal he made when he gave his son as the propitiation for our sin. And we know that he will be faithful to that. He will forgive all of those sins, all of those failings and faults. And he is just to do so because the price has been paid through Jesus Christ. He will cleanse us. Do you want cleansing? Do you feel the need for cleansing? You probably will. When you take time to sit down and reflect, you'll probably feel the desperate need for cleansing. And the beautiful thing is that he promises it. He will not withhold. He will not be the kind of God or the kind of father who will say, well, I don't know. I mean, I warned you so many times. My instructions were so clear. And you just insisted on doing the wrong thing again and again. I don't know. That might be it. I might be done with you. It's not going to happen. Because even when I am faithless, he is faithful. And he has promised that if we confess our sins, he will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
So then we too can renew. We can reflect, we can repent, and we can renew our commitments to serve and fellowship with God, having experienced that the, the cleansing that he promises when we repent. Now we can recommit ourselves, renew those determinations to serve God, to live in a way that is pleasing with him, and to walk with him, not just to please him again as one of those gods that you just hope and try and, 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 and attempt to somehow garner some of his favor. This is a holy God who calls himself your father, who calls you his child, who wants to live in fellowship with you. He wants you, really, he doesn't move. He wants you to live in fellowship with him. He invites you to do so. Those of us who are parents know that our children can hurt us badly sometimes. They can really get to the heart sometimes with the, with the disobedience or the defiance or the words, the disrespect, whatever it might be. Even the best of kids sometimes just really, the, the knife goes deep once in a while. But if they turn around, even after a long time, even if it takes a long time, if they come back and say, I'm sorry I did that, or I'm sorry I spoke to you that way, I love you, please forgive me. I don't know a parent alive who would say, too bad, too late, you blew it, get away from me. I've disowned you. I mean, that would be a wicked parent. I don't know anyone like that, thankfully. God certainly is not like that. So no matter how deep the sense of guilt might be, no matter how dirty the per a person might feel, once they've reflected upon their past, their history, whether it be this year or even beyond, further back, we can be certain that God will forgive. We can come to him and we can experience the cleansing and then there can be this beautiful renewal where we can say, I want to walk with you. And he absolutely will embrace you for that. And and then we take up the responsibility to renew those commitments because things don't just happen by accident. It does take an effort. All right? We're working against the sin nature that is still with us. And so it takes some effort to do the right things. And God does expect that of us, not to earn salvation, but to live in accordance with our salvation to live in accordance with his character. And so we have a few verses to help us to contemplate this. Ephesians 2. Now we, we all uh, believers know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? It's by grace you're saved through faith, you know, not of works, lest anyone should boast, and so on. It's a gift of God. Now, there's another verse after that. We often chop it off. But it says, for we are his workmanship... Created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So yes, our salvation comes free by faith through the work of Jesus Christ. But we are saved to something. We're not just saved from something. We are saved to something. We are saved to being the good kind of people that God wants us to be, the good kind of people who reflect his good character. We are saved to do good works. And so he has 
prepared beforehand that we should do these things, that we should walk in this manner. It's part of God's plan. It is part of the plan of salvation that we move from and to. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 reinforces this as well. 2 Corinthians 5.15, He died for all that those who live live by faith in Jesus Christ in the whole context that's very clear he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised so again he he saved us not so we can just be okay yay I get to go to heaven I don't have to go to hell now I can just kind of do it my way Frank Sinatra I've, I've <laughs> talked about that song before <laughs> my aversion to it you know, the pride, the arrogance of, I did it my way. Okay? Don't, ever, don't ever take that attitude up before God. I'll do it my way, thank you very much. No, he rescued us, he saved us, that we might not live for ourselves anymore, that we might not continue to be selfish, but that we can reflect his generous goodness and grace to others. Finally, we have the call in Romans 12, 1, where the Apostle Paul writes to those Italian believers, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In some translations, your service of worship. We are called to a new life, to live differently, to be a living sacrifice. So the sacrifice is something offered up to God, right? And so it is not a terminal sacrifice in this case. It is a living sacrifice. In other words, I'm offering up my life to you. So therefore, I'm not living for myself, Ephesians, or 2 Corinthians 5.15. I'm no longer living for myself. It's not my life to live my way. We are to be living sacrifices. Lord, it's your life. Help me to live it your way. What do you want from me? Help me to yield that up to you. Folks, what he calls us to as living sacrifices, what he might claim of our lives, may not be what we had in mind. It might be difficult. It might be sacrificial, hence the word, living sacrifice. So maybe you have plans, young person, for the career and the life that you're going to live. You've got that five-year, 10-year, 20-year plan. I'm going to study this, and I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. God might just want you to serve in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, and that might really be contrary to your plans. God might just want you to become a pastor or to enter some other area of ministry that might be contrary to your plans. Oh, are you too smart to waste your talent? Are you too capable to waste your life in ministry? Readjust your thinking. There is no one too smart or too talented to enter the highest calling in life to serve God. Whatever it might be, maybe his call in your life is to stay where you are, though it might be a 
job that is a drudgery to you. He doesn't show you anything else he wants you to do. He wants you to stay there. Maybe there's someone there who needs your Christian testimony. Maybe there's someone there who needs to hear the gospel from you. Maybe they haven't even come to your workplace yet, but they're going to. So God's going to keep you there until that day. You don't know. So you offer up your life as a living sacrifice. God, whatever you want. Just make it clear. That's some of my most frequent prayers. Just make it clear, Lord, so I can do what you want. And then give me the courage, the strength, the will to do what it is. Well, so here we are. Just to wrap up, practical application. I've made the point, so I'll just summarize them once again. Let's take time here at the start of a new year to acknowledge our absolute dependence upon God, spiritually, physically, financially, in every other way. We reflect upon all that God has done uh, for you over the past year. Then reflect on how faithful you have been to him. The repent of the failures and the offenses. Trusting him for the forgiveness and cleansing, because he promises them. And then finally, renew your commitment to live in fellowship and independence and in obedience to God in the new year. All right, so as God called the Israelites the first day of their new year to reflect, to repent, and to renew, let's take up that example. Let's do the same. Reflect, repent, renew. Let's pray and ask him to help us, and then we will come to um, the Lord's table as we celebrate that great sacrificial gift that makes these things possible, that we can have this relationship with him. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to your people, Israel, and by extension to us, that we can know something of your ways and your will. And help us to take this example of what you instructed the Israelites to do at the new year. Help us likewise to, uh, to pause, to reflect upon your faithfulness and our failings, uh, to repent of those failings, to rely upon your promise for cleansing and forgiveness, and then to renew our commitment to live in accordance with your love and your grace and your goodness and your purposes for us, your plans for us. Help us to submit truly to your lordship in our lives in this new year, that we might be more like the kind of people that you intend for us to be, that we would be conformed more to the likeness of Christ. And we pray these things in faith because we pray in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen.